Due to a technical difficulty in the production of ACB reports for February, we present a repeat broadcast from July of 2011. ACB reports will return with new material in March. The American Council of the Blind presents ACB Reports, a monthly news magazine containing topics of interest to people who are blind or have low vision. I'm Mike Duke. This month, meet mountain climber Mike Armstrong and hear the thrilling story of his amazing accomplishment. Welcome to ACB Reports for July 2011. During the week of July the 8th through the 17th, Hundreds of members of the American Council of the Blind will celebrate the organization's 50th birthday by attending the annual conference and convention of ACB in Reno, Nevada. There will be many highlights of that celebration to share in upcoming editions of ACB Reports. This month, however, we return to the 49th annual conference and convention of ACB, which was held last summer in Phoenix, Arizona. One of the closing activities of each conference is the ACB Banquet. After a week filled with important discussions, decisions, and too many places to be at the same time, conference attendees are ready for this final evening of relaxation with friends. It was my privilege to serve as the Master of Ceremonies for the ACB Banquet in 2010. In that capacity, I introduced the speaker for the evening, Mike Armstrong. Our speaker is Mr. Mike Armstrong from Phoenix, Arizona, and just a few of the things that Mr. Armstrong does. He's a martial arts instructor. He has a fifth degree black belt in karate, second degree in jujitsu, first degree black belt in the traditional samurai sword. I'm not going to mess with this guy. <laughs> He's a professional drummer and, as he says, now a mountaineer and is uh, beginning adventure racing. We were lucky to catch this guy at home, let me tell you. But we look forward to hearing about some amazing accomplishments from our speaker tonight, Mr. Mike Armstrong. First of all, I'd like to dedicate the presentation this evening to the memory of A.J. Hobbit. He was one of the blind climbers that went up Killy with us last year, and he passed from cancer to the day from when we were on the mountain. I want to explain how the loss of my eyesight exposed so many different amazing treasures to me. Since I've gone totally blind, I've become a father, a husband, not in that order. Um, <laughs> I also opened my own karate school and teach martial arts for a living. I've also become a relatively accomplished musician traveling the world playing drums for a couple different bands. And last year, I was able to climb Kilimanjaro with seven other amazing blind people and our 17 guides. We broke two world records, and in that eight days on the mountain, I learned more about myself than I had in the eight years prior. It was an amazing group of people, and it was for something bigger than ourselves. We were doing it for blind children. It was for the Foundation for Blind Children. Tonight I hope to not only explain what it was like on the mountain and create a picture for you in your mind as I saw it, but I want to explain how I got to the mountain as well. I lost my eyesight in 1996 due to a retinal disease 
that made him very susceptible to tearing. At the age of 22, I lost the eyesight in my right eye, and the doctors told me I needed to quit martial arts or I would go blind over time. I tried to quit doing karate and jiu-jitsu for about three months, but it put me in such a bout of depression that I knew I couldn't live without it. I already had students at this point in time. I was teaching out of my backyard, and it's been a passion for almost 30 years now. Well, it took about four years, but the doctors were right. Eventually, they found a retinal tear in my good eye, and they told me that I would definitely go blind within the next five years if I didn't have surgery. It gave me about a 90% success rate on it. Scheduled the surgery for three days later. Now, the night before I went into surgery, I remember sitting in my living room thinking, you know, this might be the last time I ever get to see a sunset. So I walked outside here in Arizona and just watched the sun go down, looked at the colors and appreciated them. And as it goes, that was the last time I ever saw one. Now, as many of you know, when you lose your eyesight, you have to start everything. You've got to learn how to walk, how to eat, how to read, do your hair. Of course, I just got a buzzer out and shaved mine, so I don't got to worry about it anymore. <laughs> and every time I got another one of these skills, it helped me feel more free, more like I was gaining part of my life back. Then the question came up, what am I going to do for a living? I floundered about for a while, wondering which direction I wanted to go, taking some college courses. And then one day, like a light bulb going off in my head, I said, why don't I make my passion my profession? So I took a chance, took some savings, and started my own karate school, Blind Tiger Martial Arts Academy. The truly amazing thing is, that was probably one of the best decisions of my life because it led to me meeting my wife, Tori, having children with her, starting a family. It led to my eventually climbing Kilimanjaro. How that came about was I wanted to get a little bit more training on computers so that I could run my business more efficiently. So I went to the foundation. They have an adult program. As I graduated, they asked me to come back and do more self-defense seminars because while I was there, I was teaching the students a couple different self-defense workshops. So about every two, three months, I'd get out there and teach their adult clients and even some of their youth how to defend themselves, also some workout programs that you can do without any equipment. After one of these sessions, Cindy Ross came up to me. She was the director of adult services and, and asked me if I'd be interested in climbing Mount Kilimanjaro as a fundraising effort and awareness effort for the Foundation for Blind Children. My first thought was, are you crazy? <laughs> My second thought was, well, I probably am because I really want to do this. I wanted to run it by my wife because every year they lose people on Kilimanjaro and I wanted her to be fully aware of the risk we were all taking. She was concerned about it, but she had faith in me and she felt that I would be able to do it and she felt I was in really good hands at the same time. I ran it by my kids. They just thought it was wicked awesome. So I immediately called Cindy back and said, I'm in. Now the problem is learning how to hike. Okay, I had read Eric's book about climbing Mount Hood, heard about how he climbed Everest, Eric Weinmayer, and I knew it was possible, but about six months after I lost my sight and I picked up cane skills, I tried to go hiking the superstitions and did more falling, tripping, and cutting myself up than actually hiking. So I kind of thought, well, maybe this isn't for me anymore. But... After this challenge was thrown at me, I found out 
that Kevin Trilla was the exhibition leader. Now, Kevin was on Eric's trip up Everest, so we knew we were in good hands. Each of us had a slightly different way of hiking. Some held onto a backpack. What I did, though, was I used two trekking poles to kind of feel out where the ground was while I had a sighted guide in front of me with a set of bear bells on him. At first, they would call out and tell me you were stepping up or stepping down, but after a while, I started to get it to where, at this point, they don't even hardly have to say anything anymore. The only things I want to know about is the big drops. (laughs) I figured it out one day, and we did about 300 miles prior to going to Killy in training. Uh, My team consists of Greg DePinto and Ben Kane. Ben Kane is actually one of my karate students. We left on the 19th of June, and after 33 hours of travel, we got to Kilimanjaro International Airport. Upon leaving the airport, it was just amazing to me how alien everything truly felt. I mean, the feel of the air was so different from here. The smells, the ground underfoot, the sounds, you know, I mean, there were so many different sounds that I couldn't identify right off the bat. And I felt like my heart was going to explode because I was just so excited to be there. And it really dawned on me, wow, we're going to climb the highest mountain in Africa, one of the seven summits of the world. We get in these safari buses. These things were huge. And you just throw all the luggage on top, get inside, head to the hotel. But we get there, and it's like a resort. It's just beautiful. We meet in the lobby, talk about what we're going to do on our trip, go to bed for that night. Next morning, we had a community service day at the Mwerni School for the Blind in Africa. We get on the buses, we head out there, we turn off onto this dirt road, and it was pretty sketchy. We're leaning from one side, then to the other side. At one point, I was actually leaning away from the leans because I was afraid we were going to roll. About this point, my partner, Greg, he elbows me and he goes, Mike, I wish I was blind right now. (laughs) We get around this corner, and I hear music. Well, it turns out that 300 kids showed up during their summer vacation just to welcome us to their school. Well, they're there, they're singing this amazing music. Yeah, they were awesome. We get warmly greeted by the headmaster and he proceeds to give us a tour of the facility. Now this place runs on $3,000 a year for their budget. One of the rooms that we went in, one of the dorm rooms was about, I'd say 12 foot by 15 foot, had 18 beds in it and they slept three to a bed. Okay, We were led to the auditorium where they had this amazing presentation for us. They sat us down and they were singing songs and reading poems, both in English and Swahili. Just really making us feel welcome. We had brought 50 Perkins Brailers, about 80 canes, some sunglasses and other blind materials to the school and donated them. And then they came out with the drums. Well, I've been a drummer for 26 years, so I was immediately like, captivated. One of my biggest goals was to make sure I got a chance to play drums in Africa. I tell Greg, I'm like, man, I want to play those drums really bad. And he goes, are you serious? And I said, yeah. So he went to Kevin. He went and talked to the the headmaster, asked if it would be okay if I checked out those drums and played for everybody. He got on the mic and asked all the students and they cheered and said, yeah. So Ben, I followed him down, met the drummers, checked out the drums. There's these really beat up drums sitting on the floor, three different sizes, and they hand me sticks. When I say sticks, I mean more like branches from trees, okay? (laughs) 
And I go through, I find some, I didn't care, it was good. Proceeded to get down on my knees, and I found about three minutes of total bliss. I just went off and had an awesome time. Now, if you get a chance, go to my website, blindmotivation.com. You can listen to the actual drum session there. After I get done, everybody's cheering. I, I get up and I speak into the mic for them for a little bit. The rest of the thing goes on, and they give us some food, give us a warm goodbye, and then we head back to the hotel. That night, we all sat around, started really thinking about what we're going to be doing. Kevin gave us a heads up on everything. We checked all our equipment because we knew the next day it was starting. Went to bed, got up the next morning, had our last meal in civilization for eight days, and headed to the gate. Got there about nine o'clock, and it was like pandemonium because there were other groups there. There were tons of porters all over the place. They had to get our permits to go up the mountain. It was really interesting because you're right at the edge of the rainforest, and the ground is real muddy, but they've got plywood and boards all over the place that you can walk on. There's so many different languages going on. It's just really interesting to see people from all over the world pursuing this mountain. Only about 49% of the people who attempt Kilimanjaro actually summit. So that was a daunting set of numbers when we started off on this thing. Kevin had asked me the day before if I'd lead a prayer for everybody before we went up the mountain, which I was honored. I'm a born-again Christian, and it was just an honor for me to be a part of that. We gathered around, we did our prayer, and then we started off. It starts off like a dirt road with rock and everything in it, but on either side are walls of rainforest with a mist coming down. You can hear different birds and different animals all over the place. You hear monkeys and things moving through the trees that you have no idea what they are. We went for about two hours on this road talking to some of the different porters. One thing that they always tell you is pole pole, which means go slowly. Going slowly is what gives you success to the top. So as we turn off this road, it's literally like walking into a tunnel of foliage. Overhead, you're completely covered, you're completely surrounded. Greg pointed out to me that he could not see 10 feet into the bush. It was so thick. The ground has little cracks in it that are really easy to trip on, roots coming up out of the ground, rocks all over the place, and you're just constantly going up. We hiked for about four hours, and then we stopped for lunch. We had vegetarian sandwiches. Then we proceeded to hike for another four hours until we got to the first campsite. Now, this campsite had four or five other groups camped out. It was so rocky, and the angles were so dramatic, it was crazy. Our tent was on about a 30-degree angle. It was the first time I ever slept on a slide. The crazy thing was there was one tent out of our whole group that was perfectly flat. And can you guess who that went to? Good old Kevin. He had that one, so. We had a mess tent, which was kind of interesting. You know, it was a lot more than what we expected. We sat down and ate, and I started feeling a little sick to my stomach. A little flip-flop here and there. I'm like, oh, great. Didn't think much of it at first. Started eating some more. And then all of a sudden, I felt like I was going to throw up. I turned to my partner, I said, Greg, i got to go back to the tent. And he says, you can't, man, you have to eat. On the mountain, you're going to burn between seven and 10,000 calories a day. So they're really, really animate about eating all your food, making sure you get enough nourishment through you. I tried. I, I went back to the food. I tried to eat some more. And then I broke into a cold sweat and almost passed out. Sat back and said, I can't. And he took me to the tent. Doc came and talked to me. And he said, it's probably just a reaction to the altitude. Didn't sleep much that night. Got up the next morning, tried to eat breakfast. It didn't set right. 
and we started our day. Well, I had to make a few potty stops on the way that day. Uh, now, when I talked to Kevin prior to the trip, I asked, all right, Kevin, what's the toughest day on this mountain? He says, it's going to be day two. You know, everything else is cake other than the summit and day two. But day two, I just pity all of the visually impaired people on this trip because it's just really rocky, a lot of up and down, moving around, a lot of shin busters. Um, there's one spot where you're going along a ridge line that you just don't want to fall off of because it's instant death. So I'm like, oh, great. Well, this is the day that I happen to get really sick. So we hike for about four hours. I'm feeling miserable. We stop. I eat again. You know, we had lunch. Everybody's forcing me. You got to eat, you got to eat, you got to eat. I did. Worked my way through the rest of the day. About three hours into it, I had a mantra going in my head. I'm, I'm just saying over and over, I'm going to make the summit, and I'm going to make it home. And that's all I was thinking about as I'm taking each step. At one point, we're at this ridge, and Kevin's there, and he's like, all right, Mike, you got to be real careful at this spot. And I'm like, okay, going to make the summit, going to make it home. Okay. Greg's behind me. He's got my water bottle. Ben's got my other water bottle because I'm just losing strength points by the second. Greg bumps the cliff. And my water bottle drops 300 feet straight down. That really brought it home how close to the edge we really were. So after this, we're only about 30 minutes out. I go immediately to the tent and just lay down. About 30 minutes into it, my stomach said, nope. Ran to the toilet and literally destroyed this bathroom. I felt a little better after that. But at this point, the doc says, nope, you have a stomach virus. And you are quarantined. So they quarantined me in my tent, didn't want anybody else getting what I had, and I laid there, and I prayed, and I just meditated on healing. The next morning, about 5 a.m., I heard Greg and one of the exhibition leaders talking about sending me down the mountain, and I'd trained a year for this hike, and I said, there's no way. I um, sucked it up, put on a smile, said, I'm ready to go, let's do this. On the inside, I'm feeling like death warmed over, but I didn't care. I was going to make this summit. We hiked that day. This day was easier than the day before. It wasn't as bad. It was about a six-hour hike, and they didn't force me to eat anymore. We get to the campsite. Now, this campsite, the first day was 10,000 feet. The second day was 12,000 feet. The third day, we're at 15,000 feet at the base of this uh, lava tower. So we get there, and it's starting to get a little cooler. You know, it's maybe 50 degrees somewhere in there, nothing too bad. I immediately go to the tent again, you know, start relaxing. And then out of nowhere, a wind blows in, and it starts snowing. And it goes from, you know, 50 or 60 down to 20 or 30 in the matter of about five minutes. I didn't realize how cold it really was until a couple hours later when my fever broke. It turns out I was running a fever at the time. So I'm sitting there in my T-shirt saying, oh, this feels so nice. And then... I got cold, <laughs> and it took me, literally, I'm not joking, three hours to get warm. I put all my warm sub-zero clothes on, got into my sub-zero sleeping bag, and I shivered for three hours, and about two hours into it, I was starting to get scared that I wasn't going to warm up, and I, maybe I made a mistake by not going down. But eventually I warmed up, and I got a good night's sleep. The next morning we got up, we hiked down, because you're kind of going around the mountain the route we took. So we went down to about 12,000 feet, and I was feeling a whole lot better by the time we got there. I was, I was running around 70%, I'd say, at that point. Now, at this point, I want to tell you about these crows that we had on this mountain, okay? They were really a nuisance. They'd get into everybody's packs and try to steal food. And they're these black crows with white heads, right? We get to the camp, and they've got lunch there for us. 
And they said it was chicken, but the guys who were actually with them when they got the food said they didn't get any chicken. But I'll tell you what, it was the best crow I ever ate. <laughs> that night we had some rest time, which was awesome for me. I was able to kind of regroup. The next morning I woke up and I felt like a million dollars. Everything was gone. Day five, I'm ready to go. This is the day that we did the Baronka Wall. The Baronka Wall is a thousand foot ascent of scrambling. So you're using your hands and your feet to get up this, which I loved because, you know, you do a little bit of hiking, then all of a sudden we had a little key thing where they'd say, all right, Spider-Man it, Mike. I'd hand him my trekking poles and I'd just latch onto the mountain and cruise up it. And there were a couple spots where I was feeling so great, I was really just flying up this thing. There's a couple spots where Kevin's there. All right, Mike, be careful here. And I'm already past him. You know, I'm just flying because I feel good again. And if you've ever been really sick, when you feel better, it's just like a million dollars. I get to the top of the Barranca Wall, and we start hiking down through this beautiful valley. At least it sounded beautiful. There were flowers on the ground all over the place. The, the trail itself at this point was really, really smooth. It was almost like a road. It was so nice because it was all scree, so it was just really, really fine rock, really smooth. Hiked about another four hours that day and made our camp on day five. Day six came around. It was a relatively easy day. We went from 13,000 feet to 16,000 feet, and it took us about five hours. It wasn't a bad hike at all, and it was all relatively easy stuff until you start getting around, you know, 15, and your breathing is like, you know, because the air is so thin. We make high base camp, and... They wanted everybody in bed by 6 o'clock so that we could get up at 1 a.m. to do our summit push. So we go to bed early, and we wake up at 1 to go to the top, and it was just incredible. It's about 17 degrees outside. Everybody's got their cold-weather gear on. Kevin kept teasing me. I got this hat that looks like a Chinese guy hat, okay? You know, the typical... Rice paddy hat. It's, it's an actual hiking hat. It's called a chilba. But he kept teasing me the whole hikes, all the training hikes. He's like, man, Mike, I love that pink hat. I'm like, okay, whatever. So as a joke, I had one of my friends knit me a pink cap. And I waited until summit day to put on that pink hat. And uh, I walk up to Kevin. And I go, hey, Kevin, how do you like my hat? And he just about fell off the mountain laughing. <laughs> we push our way up through this. Now, this is where the scree gets really rough because you're taking two steps up and one step sliding back. You're doing switchbacks back and forth. You're having to go really slow. You're breathing. You're doing pressure breathing where you take a deep breath and you blow it out really fast from your mouth. My sighted guides are exhausted. You know, everybody, it's just pushing your, your body to the limits. They're not calling stuff out anymore because they just can't breathe. We get to this spot called Stella Point, and this is 18,900 feet. And Kevin turns to the whole group and he goes, I have never had anybody turn back from this point. We're going to make the summit, all 25 of us. Took about an hour from there, and we made it all the way to the summit, every one of us. Now, the summit was incredible. It was like being on a different planet. It really was. You can't breathe. Your brain isn't firing on all cylinders. We had these great ideas of doing these things when we're at the top, and it's like, what were we talking about? I actually, I was joking around with everybody, but it's the first time I saw anything 
I was actually hallucinating in like 13 years. I was actually seeing white flashes all around. I'm like, wow, this is interesting. One of the most amazing parts of the summit for me, though, was I have a student, Ben Kane. He's been training with me for a little over three years now. And when he first came to my dojo, my wife said, he'll never last. He weighed 355 pounds. I dedicated two hours every morning to working out, helping him with diet, and we just became like the tightest of friends. He was down to 220 pounds when we climbed Kilimanjaro together. At the top of the mountain, unbeknownst to him, I had tested him for his brown belt while we were back in Phoenix. I carried the belt up the mountain and gave him his brown belt on the top of Kili. Now, coming down was just amazing. It was every step you take, you're breathing better. And the scree that was so hard going up, we're literally running down. And it was just so fun. It's almost like skiing in rock. It was just incredible. The whole way up, I didn't hold on to anybody's shoulder at all. But on the way down, I grabbed onto Ben's backpack, and we literally ran down this mountain. What took us seven and a half hours to get to the top of, we were down in an hour and 15 minutes. (laughs) So we were flying. We get back to the camp, we have lunch, and then we head down to the Millennium Campsite, which is 12,000 feet. That was about a three-hour hike. And then we proceeded to just enjoy the fact that we all summited and just had a great time. Sat around, drank some Kilimanjaro beer. They actually had a little guy that was selling it there. So that was kind of cool. And the next morning we got up, we hiked out. It was down through the rainforest. It was raining on us. A lot more of the stuff that I talked about in the beginning, you know, the little cracks and the roots and everything. But everybody's just flying high, you know, because we'd done this. Once you get to the bottom, they've got a live band that's playing the Kilimanjaro song for you. All the porters are patting you on the back and, you know, just making a big deal of it. And we had a big buffet, barbecue kind of thing that was just incredible. After we got back, we ended up getting on MSNBC. We got over six million hits on our MSNBC. We also ended up on the NBC Sunday Evening News, had about a three and a half minute segment on our trip. We got to meet the mayor, we got to meet the governor, got several different awards, and got to inspire millions all over the world. I've had a lot of people ask me, well, what now? And once you do something like this, it's kind of in your blood, and you don't stop. I've been hiking consistently since the climb. I did Mount Humphreys. I participated in an adventure race in the Rocky Mountains. It's something that Eric Weinmayer put on, and uh, I just ended up on a team last minute. About three weeks before the race, they sent me an email. Kevin did, and he says, Hey, Mike, this guy needs a, a blind guy to be on this team. And uh, I told him about you. You demand, do it. So I did it. Our team took second place. We were Team Cisco slash Eye Candy. It was cool. And... Of course, we got beat by Eric Weinmayer's team, so what can you do? You know? Can't be beat by a better company, right? I'm going to be hiking the Grand Canyon, rim to rim to rim. I'm doing rim to rim the day before, meeting everybody on the north rim, and then a whole group of us from the FBC is going to do north to south. Altogether, my team will be doing about 50 miles. Also, Ben, Greg, and I are going to be hiking the Arizona Trail. This is an 800-mile hike. It's going to take us 40 days at 20 miles a day. So if you want to hear 
about any of the other crazy stuff I got going on, see some of the different footage of my bands playing. I played in Taiwan the last couple years. It's all on my website, blindmotivation.com. Check it out and keep in touch. God bless. Mike Armstrong lives and works in Phoenix, Arizona. His website is blindmotivation.com. You've been listening to a repeat broadcast of ACB Reports from July 2011 when the speaker at the awards banquet was mountain climber Mike Armstrong. You've been listening to ACB Reports from the American Council of the Blind. ACB Reports is heard each month on audio information services across the United States and worldwide on the ACB Media Network, acbmedia.org. The show is produced at Radio Reading Service of Mississippi, a service of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Contact the American Council of the Blind at acb.org or phone 800-424-8666. Thanks for listening, and please join us again next month for another edition of ACB Reports.